0: preaching still ends at 12, right? Well, let me just say that you all look just as young as ever. (sighs) I'm sorry we couldn't remember every name, but that's what happens when you pass 55. And you don't quite remember everybody's names like you should, but it's certainly been, just driving down here, a a walk through memory lane for Teresa and I, and uh, it was—it it is truly a homecoming for us because it's so good to see you, each and every one of you, as well as many other uh, new faces. And when you begin to reminisce, you start th- thinking about things running through your head, the original pulpit committee who called us and we met in the fellowship building there and I'll never forget. They were talking about how many resumes they had gone through and then, uh, someone said, and oh yeah, and we found, hey, we were about to give up and we found yours down between the seat where the french fries are. <laughs> and didn't know whether to take that as an encouragement or not. But anyway, they, uh, everything just worked out well and we enjoyed our years here, but again, the, the memories just rush through your head. And uh, one thing that I remembered immediately was, I'll never forget, I was here about two or three weeks, and Dean, I think it was your boys invited my son to go hog, wild hog hunting. <laughs> I, you know me, I don't know anything about hunting or fishing. Remember, I'm just not quite a country boy, but he came back late and he was torn from head to toe. He was dirty and filthy and he came in with a smile on his face and said, I just had the best time of my life. <laughs> I said, what'd you do? And he said, we fell in ditches and briars and he said, tore all the places. And I'm going, Oh my, I'm in Westminster. <laughs> But uh, it, our daughter, of course, was married in this church, and Teresa and I had a, a real quick walk through the auditorium there, and I still think those are the most beautiful stained-glass w- windows anywhere in the country. And it's a beautiful church, and I'm glad to see that things have done as well as they have, and you've grown uh, in your time here since we left you. Of course, we uh, went to a church that was smaller and they were having problems. But as you know, that's been my call in the ministry is to go into places, bring healing, help them to come back up and get stronger. And we went to Crossroads Baptist Church and we left here not wanting to because things were going so well. The numbers were up. 120 folks, I think, had joined in our six years here. You had money coming in, getting ready for the building program. And I'll never forget the last time at Crossroads, Teresa, the church was going well, getting ready to build a new fellowship building. Numbers were up, way up, things doing well. And I'll never forget, Teresa put her arm around me, and she said, well, I guess it's time to leave. Things are going well. And that's been our ministry. But it's a ministry we're glad to be a part of. But you will always have a special place in our lives here, because of the the years we spent since we left you. I, uh, Raquel, of course, was married here, and Paul is uh, my son is married, believe it or not, and uh, they both have grandsons for me. I have four grandsons. All Teresa nine eight. 3 and 2. 983 and 2. We had the 2 and 3 year old this weekend. So that's why I'm a little tired. And uh four grandsons. Raquela is 35. Paul is 32, and I want a granddaughter. I want a granddaughter. So I've promised $10,000 to the first one <laughs> who will give me a granddaughter and ra- Raquel's husband, John, made it very clear that wasn't going to do it because it now takes $248,000 to raise a child from birth through college. And it was going to take a whole lot more than that. But I really would like to have a granddaughter. So we're just hoping, praying that maybe uh, they'll work that out for us. But our children are doing well, happily married. The only resentment I think we have in life is that uh, they're both making more money than us put together. And uh, so I guess that's good, and they're succeeding in doing well. I, in the meantime, if you remember, had enrolled at Princeton, and we finished our doctorate there. Teresa has her master's plus 30 hours, and she's a food science teacher and has just accepted an adjunct position at Toccoa Falls to start teaching uh, sustainability at the Daco Falls College for, to train missionaries on the foreign field. So we've come a long way in our lives, and and we're happy to be here today. Thank you. We're proud that you asked us back here. I can now say I've been asked to all my former churches. I think that says something, that you're able to come back and still want it back. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, verses 1 through 3, to begin. And as we look at these verses, we're going to also be reading verses 11 through 32. And most of you are going to recognize this as the story of the prodigal son. But we're going to change the title on you this morning. It's not about the prodigal son as far as I'm concerned. It's about a prodigal God, and I'll explain in just a moment. Luke 15, 1. Now all the tax collectors, the sinners, were coming near to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, He then speaks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, but then jumped to verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together. They went on a journey into a distant country and there he squandered his estate with those living with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of our hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But While it was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For his son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he came angry. and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected the command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead. And has begun to live and was lost. And has been found. And God's people say. You may be seated. The idea comes from Keller's book, The Prodigal God. And if you'll remember in the story of the prodigal son, we have the essentials of the gospel message and God's grace. The plot is simple, and for you that have heard it many times, you know it. But the plot is rather simple. Because here's a guy with two sons. And the younger wants his inheritance. In fact, he insists on it, promptly leaves, squanders it. The older son remains at his father's side for those years and works and is obedient. And then this younger son comes home and he's wasted everything and he deserved nothing from the father. He's just hoping he can be a slave of the father. But instead, he's received back as a son. He comes home. The problem with the title prodigal son is that it's probably a bad title for this because the story starts off with a man had two sons. And it ends with the father not only graciously receiving that younger son, but also having to plead with the older one. You could maybe call it the lost two sons, but I want you to think about that word prodigal that we often attach to this story. Because the word prodigal, if you go to it in the dictionary, means reckless, wasteful, lavish, extravagant spending. How many of you have been that way lately? Wasteful, extravagant, lavish spending on someone else. That's the word prodigious. To be prodigious is to spend and waste on another. And who in this story is in a prodigious way pouring out everything he has for his two sons? So I declare to you, it's not about a prodigal son. It's about a prodigious father. Father who is lavishly pouring out on his sons. You and I serve a God who's in the business of loving and forgiving. Amen? We are in a, have a father who just goes out of his way to pour out his grace on us. And that's what this story is about. In fact, as one commentator said, God's grace is downright reckless. because He's just spreading it everywhere. So Jesus uses a parable, which is nothing more than a short story based on common experience, to try to put this point across. But before we get into the story completely, note in verses 1 through 3, there's two different kinds of people here. We first of all have tax collectors and sinners, it says. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. You might say they will correspond to this younger brother who go out and just waste their lives indulging in all their passions and desires. But here are these people, these tax collectors, these sinners, coming near, it says. They're coming near to Jesus to hear him Because they had already begun to learn. Here is someone that we might actually find mercy with. And when you're a sinner, and when your life has been wrecked by sin, and your life has been wrecked by sin, there is no better place to go than to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's this other crowd that's there, the Pharisees and the teachers. They're the elder brother folk. And what's the first thing they do? Are they happy to see the sinners? Are they glad to see people finding forgiveness and grace? No, all they can do is judge. Now, let's not forget that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are people who were traditional in their thinking. These were people who were studied, had obeyed the scriptures, worshipped faithfully, went to synagogue every Sunday, and crossed their T's and dotted their I's. And these are the people who are concerned about the company Jesus is keeping Let me insert something here. For many of us Christians, we need to change the company we're keeping. We need to not hang around other Christians as much. We may need to spend more time hanging with the sinners. Because those are the people we've been sent to. And Jesus was criticized for it. It's interesting how it says they were gathering, which in the progressive tense means simply these Pharisees and teachers of the law. They had a bad habit of always showing up and trying to cause Jesus trouble. And this was no exception. This man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. And the problem with eating with them is that you were, by token, showing acceptance of them. Now, I hope everybody plans to stay and eat afterwards. But just remember, you're all eating with sinners. By token, you and I must always remember that the only difference between us and the world is the grace of God. It's too easy to become a Pharisee And judge. How dare he do this, they say. So Jesus says, you know, I need to teach you guys some things. And he begins to teach them these parables. And the story of the two sons is not the story of immoral outsiders. As much as it's the story about the moralistic religious insiders. And it's possibility. Is it a possibility that the younger brother left because he couldn't stand the self-righteousness of the older brother? Is it a possibility he said, I've had enough of this religious stuff? All the studies that are being put forth today say that, by and large, many young people are pushing away from the church. And one of the main reasons they're doing so is because of the lack of transparency and honesty and humility by those in the church. So I want to ask you this morning. As And praise the Lord for your numbers here and how well you are doing. But may we never fall into the trap of being more concerned about getting the elder brothers from other churches. Let us rather concentrate on the sinners that need Christ. Jesus, Says, I care. I care so much, I'll leave a whole flock of sheep to go look for one lost one. I care so much that if I lose one coin, I'm going to search heaven above and earth below to find that coin. He's trying to say to them something that you and I need reminding of. Everybody needs a homecoming. Everybody needs a homecoming. But there's a lot of folks that don't have a home. So when we look at these two lost sons, very quickly, let's look at the younger brother real quick. His proposal was rather shocking, you must realize. Culturally, and according to rabbinical law, his older brother would get two-thirds and he'd only get a third. And so basically, he's saying to the father, I want my third now so that I can go. But how many of you want your inheritance before the father dies? You know, that's rather impertinent, isn't it? I was comforted the other day by my son, who has become a very strong Christian, but He keeps reminding me that when I get older, he will buy me the best wheelchair money can buy. (laughs) But he keeps mentioning about no (laughs) brakes. So, here's a son who says, I want mine now. Now, that's a sign of deep disrespect, a casting aside of values of your culture and your tradition to say, Father, in essence, I'm not, w- I'm not willing to wait for you to die. I want it now. It's, it's the same thing as wishing Dad was dead. Do you realize that? He's saying, Dad, you're still here. I want mine now. I want out. I can't stand this self-righteous brother of mine. And I'm not willing to pay by the rules anymore. There's a whole world out there to enjoy. Let me go. But do you realize something? In asking for that wealth, he's asking for the family's very living. And here's why I know that. Some of your versions, it reads, give me my estate now. That Greek word there is a very peculiar word because it actually carries the same weight as bios. Give me my living or that from which we make our living. Here's the picture. He's saying, I want my third of the property that we make our living from so I can go sell it and get my money. He's just reduced the farm by one third so he could get his which hurts everybody. In other words, I don't care about you. Just me. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that describes the young brother. And he's certainly guilty of putting me first. And not caring about the breast. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to distillate sin down to one thing, you can sum it up this way. It's called selfishness. Me first. But what's so shocking is the father's response. And the family is made to live with this decision. The father says... Okay, it's yours. Take it. Do as you please. Why did he do that? Because the father understood his young son. And he knew he wasn't going to be happy until he did it. But he also knew something that many of us have had to learn go make your bed and lie in it. How many of you heard that all your life? Go make your bed and lie in it. I can tell you that most of this gray hair here belongs to Paul, my son. How many times did I stand, even at that parsonage window over there, and wait for him to come back in that stupid jeep that broke down all the time? Do you remember that? And I never understood why it wouldn't go in gear and why the transmission was constantly messed up in that thing until I found out he was mud bogging. Your fault? No. <laughs> It's always the deacons, kids. But anyway, you pray, you worry, you pray, you worry. But you finally reach that point where you realize it's going to God, it's going to be you. You're going to have to straighten him out. And by God's grace, he did But it wasn't until I, as a father, learned to let go and let God take care of it that I finally got peace. I think that's what this father's doing here. And he goes into this far country and he prodigiously squanders and spends all of his wealth that he has. And the next story you all know, we find him in a pig lot not even getting the best of what the pigs were eating. And so he makes this plan. Well, I'm going to go home. I'm going to humble myself. And I'm going to admit to my father, I've done wrong. Just please make me as one of your servants. But don't miss this point as you contemplate on it. At least he had a home where he knew he could go to. That's important. He had a home. He knew there was a place where he would receive mercy and love and grace. Church, does this county know that they can come home to Westminster first? That's an important question for you. So when he gets home... Not, you know, I, I wished I could have been like this father, but I was like the rest of you. Oh, Paul, I'm glad you're safe. I'm going to kill you! Y'all ever been that way? Oh. The father throws him a party. Won't even let him finish his sad story and throws him this party in fact, the father runs to him. Now don't miss this picture. In order, the patriarch would have never run to the child. The patriarch would have stood and let the child come to them. He runs, but in order to run, he has to lift up his robe. Patriarchs don't lift up their robes and show their legs. That's like slaves and children. This father didn't care. Up comes the robe runs to the son, embraces him, stinking, dirty, and can't at that point give him enough love. He restores him. Here's what he does. He gives him the best robe. Who in the house do you think had the best robe? The father. The father takes his best suit puts it on his son, which emblematically says, you're now a part of the family again. And God's people say, praise the Lord. What? Yes, you've just gone from the pig pen. Now, you've been re-inherited. Re-inherited? Yeah. So at this point, he's dumbfounded. Then he gives him a ring. A ring is always a signature of your belonging to the family, as well as authority in the family. He puts shoes on his feet. He prepares a feast using the fattened calf, which is always saved for the most special of occasions. And the next thing you know, music is braiding out and everybody is celebrating. Everybody is happy. And what a homecoming for a young man who didn't think he had a home. May you and I make sure that Westminster and Oconee County and South Carolina, may we make sure that they know they have a home to come to where we will treat them like royalty. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I wish the story ended there, don't you? But then we've got this older brother who went to the Baptist church. His, uh, his response was furious. And he ends up insulting the father. Look at what happens very quickly. He's upset, first of all, about the cost of everything. Do you notice that? Especially the fattened calf. You never even gave me a goat. Folks, the cost should never matter when we're talking about lost souls. The cost should never matter when we're talking about the needs of people who need to come home again. But if you've got this elder brother, first thing he does is look at the budget. And then he complains about the robes, the rings, the shoes. Gosh, what are you doing all this for? Especially to him. Bringing him back in the family now means that he gets to spend more. He's already wasted his. Now he gets to share in mine. How dare you? And then to make things worse, the younger brother, of course, did nothing to merit this because the older brother is totally convinced he spent it on prostitutes. Now, it said he went into a far country, right? How does the older brother know this? Well, I'm going to assume he doesn't. He is gossiping. He's making it up. But he tried to paint as ugly a picture as he could about his brother. And he thinks it's an insult to the family for the father to lavish him with all of this. And so he speaks then of his own faithfulness. He said, now, father, I've been right beside you. I've worked. I've labored. I've done everything you've asked me to do. In other words... God, why are you spending so much? Why is so much being required to reach others? And we're here getting nothing. Father, I've been going to church my whole life, I've been faithful, I've served in offices. I've given, I've done this, I've done that, I've been obedient. I don't do all those bad things. And the next thing you know, the brother's sin was selfishness, his was self-righteousness. And so when he finds out about all of this, he, t- the slave that had come out to him said, come on, join the party, and he said, I'm not coming the father sends a servant out there. He won't come. He has just insulted the father. When the father says come, you were to come. He said, I'm not doing it. He's standing on the outside pouting. But this is the part I want you to get as we close. That same loving father who wrapped that sinful younger son in a robe and a ring And a fattened calf and throws a party for him, does something, don't miss this, he does something even more miraculous for the older son. It says that he went out to him. Isn't that what he said? Look at it. He had gone out to him. He demeaned himself. The same father that lifted the robe and went running and embraced that lost, sinful son is the same gracious, loving father who wants to embrace His people in the church that sometimes don't act the way they always should, who sometimes get a little bit puffed up, who sometimes get a little bit too self consumed or self focused. And that same father says to that son, I want you to come in, I want you to come home too. That's the irony you can actually be a part of the household and you still need to come home. You still need to come in. Repent of your hard heart. Repent of your indifference. Repent of the fact that you've lost the joy of your salvation and the joy of seeing others come to the Lord. You too may need to come in and repent, but know this the Father loves you too because He came out and asked you to come in. Sadly, the story doesn't tell us if the Father's response softened him enough to repent. We're left hanging. But on this homecoming, I come with one message. Come home. Come home to the Lord. If you're a lost sinner and you've wasted your life in riotous living. Maybe you're in the church and you've gotten cold and different. You've gotten wrapped up in doing all the right things, but you've lost the joy. Of your salvation and the joy of seeing others saved. And you need that hard heart softened a little bit. We want to invite you to come home too. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we submit this story and the message of this story to your people under what we pray has been the anointing of your Spirit. That you would speak to each according to their need. May Christ be glorified. Each heart stirred. And one thing's for sure. May we all come home in some way today. And rejoice at a prodigious father who loves us all. And has given so much for us. If nothing else, may we celebrate that today in Jesus' name. What number, brother?